Hello, Secret Keepers. X Secrets of Fortune is a game of fantasy adventure. The world of Taish is not Earth, but as with any great work of fiction, the episodes of our own history provide an endless trove of storytelling treasures. Join us as we delve into some of the real-world archaeological influences of X Seekers of Fortune. That and so much more on today's episode of the Mega Moth Studios Super Secret Podcast. Shh. Don't tell anybody about it. Welcome back to the show, Secret Keepers. I'm your host, Jericho Stone superfan, Joel Watts, joined, as always, by... Co-host, Resurrected, Danny. You know, back in action. And good to see you back in action, Danny. I you know, hope the rest was recuperating. It, but on today's episode, we are delving... It was kind of. It was kind of recuperating. The problem is, is like I, I listened to the the last episode, which was great. I think Emmy did a fantastic job. Uh, lots of good lore. I I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you made some bold claims about monkeys, so that was interesting. But overall, my biggest review was I just felt like you weren't quite antagonized enough in that episode. So we're gonna have to do a double dose this episode. I'm sure. I'm sure you're going to antagonize me with uh, your your claims of uh, archaeological history here, which is what we're going to be delving into today in this first episode of this series dedicated to exploring real world archaeological influences of X Seekers of Fortune. Now, Danny, you came up with this concept. Do you have a Do you have a name for this uh, style of episode? Well, right now I like calling it excavating the unknown, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. better names may uh, be uncovered later. You know. Don't like to commit myself too much. <laughs> so if you see a thumbnail with a different yeah, name, yeah. just know uh, Will said, no, 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 Yeah. In today's episode, Danny will be walking us, well, perhaps more importantly, diving us into the story of Atlantis, at least as far as we know uh, from the archaeological records and I'm sure some amount of speculation Danny yeah we'll we'll get into it don't worry I I won't I won't let you down I'll okay. give you the I'll cool, give you cool. the the down low okay well I'm, I'm here to hopefully sort out fact from fiction but we'll see what happens but before we get into that I want to ask you two somethings okay first are you ready for the question of the week uh, generally no but today also no Okay, well, too bad, because we're going right into it. Uh, So my second thing is, I'm going to ask you the question of the week, which is, if you could witness any moments in Earth's history, knowing that you would be safe in observing it, what moment would you be most interested in having a front row seat for? Oh, wow. Uh, So I I do have a good answer for this one, but I would would like you to go first, because I think uh, my answer uh, will be better coming second. Oh, putting you on the hot seat, Joel. That is, you know, I know, I know, I know. It's the it's tables are about to com- be completely turned. I mean, essentially, you're going to be from from this point forward. You're basically the host of the episode. And I see you're grasping that power. Immediately just grabbing it. Being, just uh, grabbing it. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're just wrestling it from me. But mo- there's great moments of history that are known and unknown like you know there's things that have been alluded to that it would be almost wonderful to bear witness to uh and potentially be able to report back on so you know um the 
moment of history that it would be interesting to see, especially if it's like, if we're assuming we're kind of getting to see it from like a, a bird's eye view or like, you know, kind of a global level would be uh, the moment of history that is speculated upon most, but um, doesn't really have any clear, true historical record. It's just speculation because of all the different cultures writing about it in their ancient histories and reacting to it on a mythological level. And that moment of history would be the great flood as depicted. I believe it was depicted in the old Testament with Noah. I want to say it was alluded to in the tales of Gilgamesh. And I'm pretty sure there's other cultural like touchstones throughout the world that suggests that something at some point kind of had a big reset switch on humanity where many people died and uh, all due to some sort of, climactic um you know uh cataclysmic uh like uh, weather event so i would like to you know be able to see that and sort out what exactly happened well funnily enough that is also my answer to this question the great flood is something that i think i've been fascinated with for a long long time and as you pointed out i mean almost every culture has some mention of of a great flood story so even though we don't have like a really concrete idea of, of, of what it is that they're talking about. I, I, I think that there's a lot of reason to be interested in the question of whether or not there was something. I personally think that there was. And part of this series will be delving into uh, exploring what we know that might allude to the possibility of a great flood. And so we'll get into it a little bit today. Um, but in, in future installments, we'll, we'll, we'll dive deeper into the possible floodwaters because um, I think that there's some really interesting, interesting things being uh, looked at and talked about with respect to uh, the more distant ancient past. And uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of possibly great archaeological uh, discoveries ahead of us here in this uh, this next um, decade and century. One of the biggest advancements in, in, in archaeology as of late has been LIDAR detection. Now, do you know much about LIDAR detection, Joel? Well, uh, before, before you, is this us like, like getting into the meat of the episode? Just want to make sure. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's getting into the meat or if it's, you know, a side salad, but I mean, it's, it's certainly something I'm curious. Okay. Okay, okay. Uh, LiDAR detection. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head what LiDAR detection is. It sounds like something I've heard of before and probably have had mentioned like if I was watching like some sort of documentary about like like this topic on YouTube, which I do often. Um, I'm sure they've mentioned LiDAR, but I don't know how the technology works. So I'll give you like the really uh, high level um, explanation of it. So like, Joel, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but just in case we haven't, I'm not a scientist, a historian, archaeologist, or really qualified in any way to be talking about any of the things that I'm going to talk about in this episode. Um, but with that being said, you should definitely believe everything I say. And uh, LIDAR actually stands for light detection and ranging. And what it, what it works effectively is you're shooting a pulsed laser at the Earth, and you end up being able to kind uh -huh. of map out things that are under the surface. So... For instance, archaeologists have been able to fly over the Amazon rainforest and see runes that are completely covered, 
using this LIDAR technology. Mm -hmm. They've been able to find ancient tombs in, in Egypt and all over the world. So it, it's giving us this new ability to see what's under the ground without actually having to do the digging. And that is a huge, huge, huge innovation in archaeology. And that is part of the reason why I think we are on the verge of learning more about our ancient past than we ever have before. I mean, it is another piece of the technological puzzle that is filling in the cracks and getting like deeper than we've ever been before. So I really love hearing that, you know, it's not just like we've discovered everything we can. There's still th new things to be coming out. And I'm sure they'll refine this or find another technology that hits, you know, their detection at a different angle than this technology does. So I'm sure more will be uncovered soon. But that is fascinating <laughs> that we're using that technology to see underneath the world. It reminds me of those... Uh, I'm not sure if it's x-rays or what have you, but like they're able to uh, scan paintings these days, like ancient paintings, or I shouldn't say ancient, but you know, like Renaissance paintings from the past and see past what was on the surface because often painters will, you know, save resources uh, by reusing a canvas or they'll just paint over if they need to make a correction. Like I just saw the other day, some prince of France, I wanna say, they took his, his portrait and scanned it and realized that the artist had initially you know painted him as a you know a, literally a short king and then i guess after seeing it and seeing how small he looked in proportion they I, they must have asked him the artist to uh probably under threat of death i'm sure <laughs> to increase the prince's height so, you know so you, you it's like the secret is revealed like that prince is now eating crow and probably in hell yeah. uh, for, you know, uh, for the embarrassment of his, uh, his size that he was trying to cover up. Now yourself admittedly quite vain. Would you ever <laughs> kill someone who did an unflattering portrait of you or threatened to kill them if you were of that era? Mm, I, I'm, uh, well, see, of that era, that's always the thing. It's like if I w if Joel was a noble person of like the middle ages to Renaissance era, well, I would be a completely different person. I would have been raised with different, you know, different things like the the different wolves you know the two wolves inside of you the black wolf would have probably been or the like the the aggressive wolf would have probably been much more uh fed by my uh surroundings a lot more of a um, scoundrel this day and age i mean i would love to s yes uh, well yeah i believe so a lot more ruthless uh. um but i think this day this day and age uh i would love to sit down to have a funny portraiture made of me i have a sense of humor uh, or at least I like to think I do. So I would love to see what they what what the qualities of my features they would pull out to make to exaggerate to make fun of me. I just want to know. I think the difference is what more about Renaissance Joel. Like I want to know more or Dark Ages Joel. Yeah, Dark Ages Joel. What are like the top three characteristics of well, Dark Ages Joel that are different than twenty twenty four Joel, Powderpuff Joel? Oh, uh, that's a that's a great question because I can't. Like, I, I would assume, well, okay, well, there's the two paths. Am I born into nobility or am I just a, a peasant serf? Because if I'm a peasant serf, I've probably suffered. Nobility. You have, like, way have, too uh, much money and, and access to <laughs> okay. resources. And, like, way too many people care about what you think. Oh, man. I'm, I'm probably a real, I'm probably pretty scummy. I mean... I'm probably like, you know, like any good noble at the time, I'm probably paying the Catholic Church a lot to keep me out of hell uh -huh. to balance out all the sinning I'm doing. You know, probably have like a, a, my fair share of mistresses. You know, I have a, you know, if I had that kind of power at the time, I probably would have, you know, utilized it. And um, um, the last thing is I probably would 
be talking a lot about how important it is for the Crusades to happen and how, you know, the, those boys over there are doing such great work in the Crusades, but I would have never have ever gone and served my time in the Crusades. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's the that's the picture I'm, I'm thinking right now. And I'm probably paying my portrait artist uh, to take a few pounds off of me, <laughs> you know, just uh, like, you know, just uh, just make me a little more tight. Uh, so, yeah. That's the that's Renaissance Joel there, but um, I was going to say uh, the difference between sitting down with a modern character artist, character artist, and a portrait uh, artist of that era is like you were expecting, you know, you're expecting something funny to come out of a character artist versus like, you know, the uh, the person that you patronize, you know, sitting down and like drawing an unflattering picture of you is much more of a hit to the ego, I'm sure. Yeah, especially if they're like not actively trying to insult you they're like oh i just am doing a realistic interpretation of of your short short body mm-hmm. yeah not not the best feeling you could you could make you could make a comedy sketch out of that you know like the artist trying doing his best to like figure out how to flatter the person he's making a portrait of <laughs> you just like they like uh show them the painting and then the king like gets upset and then like they just like uh quickly think on their feet and point to like a random lady nearby and it's like it's her fault she was doing witchcraft and then they both get put to death <laughs> well, just to be sure <laughs> that's yeah, he just he just took her with him yeah well well you've been tainted by the witchcraft master painter <laughs> we can't trust you anymore do you think like there was a witchcraft kink mm-hmm. back in the day like you think there were like some people secretly were like trying to seek out witches to to get down oh hell yes yeah oh for sure there's definitely a witch Come kink on. now if there's a, if there's a witch <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What I'm, that's exactly what I'm thinking. The reason they were the reason they were probably burned at the stakes, uh, uh, you know, was because they probably, you know, the ro- the right the wrong guy went looking for you know some affection from a witch who didn't want to return it, and then he's like, well, unfortunately for you, madame, I have all the power in the town, so let me go bring a mob this way. And then he was like, ah, well, it was it was okay because she died, so she clearly wasn't a witch, and I wasn't into her that much anyway. <laughs> that is talk about sour grapes yeah 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 oh man well i'm really curious what podcasts would have sounded like in the the dark ages um or during uh the witch hunts i think that we'd have some really interesting discussions on uh yes what made for a high uh, high value male <laughs> in the ages of well, uh burning at a stake <laughs> <laughs> oh man i i would okay not that many different kinds of podcasts i would listen to uh but a solid like red pill like style podcast would be fu- h- hilarious to hear from uh the renaissance and middle ages i was just imagining i mean i don't know if you heard about this and i don't mean to press political buttons here but did you hear that uh elon musk visited auschwitz and said that if twitter was around when the Holocaust happened that it wouldn't have happened. Uh, I have not heard that. Um, <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, I mean that is a quite a bold claim. It, I don't know if I care to weigh in on that too deeply on this podcast. That is mostly about witch kinks I, and things. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I. I just, it's to just to say that uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to what you know through the community obviously picked that up and have posted tweets of what 
Twitter would have looked like back in like the 1940s, you know, during World War II. So, uh, you know, I, I think like it would be cool if uh, people would go the next level and record an entire, you know, uh, Renaissance era uh podcast you know maybe reviewing actually seeing a william shakespeare play at the globe theater that could be good what would a red pill dark ages podcast even look like i mean they barely considered like they barely considered anything but rich white men to be human so like like i don't understand like what's the red pill like they're just figuring out another like minority to elevate above all the rest kind of thing like Oh, really? It's just uh, white people from this small patch of land that is. Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it's like they, they're, they're doing far too well over in the, you know, I don't know, the. Uh, I'm trying to think of a place in Europe, and obviously I'm not that well traveled. <laughs> but, you know, the Amps, uh, over in Amsterdam, they think they're all high and mighty and that they deserve everything. I mean, they're, they're obviously swine, you know. That sort of thing. They would obviously have like different, it would just essentially be what was the bunk, I guess, kind of bunk science of the time. Well, there's it, so I, much. Well, no, <laughs> there's so be, much bunk science. So much, yeah. <laughs> I know. It doesn't even have to be, now that I think about it, every podcast of that era would have been like a red pill podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, this is literally an era where the prevailing wisdom was that the earth was flat. And that the uh, that the universe, to the extent there was one, revolved around the sun. I mean, the earth, the earth. That definitely, that was still definitely true. I I want to say that the earth being flat was actually dispelled a long time, a long a lot earlier than we stereotype. But the thing, because the thing about uh, the Greeks knew, what is it? the Greeks knew, they uh, figured it out. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that wisdom prevailed. It's 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 because everybody says that about the Christopher Columbus thing. It's like everybody doubted Christopher Columbus and they said the world was flat and sail off of it. But what they really said is India is so much further away than you think it is for you to sail that way and hit India. will there's no way you can have the provisions to do that. You were an idiot. And he just lucked out that there happened to be a landmass between Europe, Western Europe and uh, Eastern India that he could hit along the way and not die. Well, you know, this is one of the really exciting things about history is like just imagining times where people Mm -hmm. didn't know what was on the other side of the Atlantic, right? And like, you know, it was just like an endless ocean. There was so much of the world left to discover. And now we live in an age of satellites and it feels like, you know, like I sometimes I'll just get on Google Maps and just start scrolling around the Pacific Ocean looking for islands. And it's like pretty much everything that's like a visible from space has been been mapped at this point. It would be so exciting to live in a Mm -hmm. time where you know, we didn't even understand the full extent of the world, right? And uh, that's a little yeah. bit about why I'm so attracted to things like today's main topic and lost civilizations and unknown mm-hmm. history. Yeah. So, shall we? Oh, well, ever since, yeah, I was just going to say, ever since I've known you, ever since we've uh, known each other, I think you've always had an itch for adventure, more so than me. Uh, more so than myself. I, I've always been pretty like, I'm happy I grew up in a time with documentaries so I could travel the world from my couch. Yep. But you've always had an itch for these things and definitely an interest in these ancient civilizations that I think you're going to delve into today. So yeah, I would really love to hear what, you, uh, what you're coming to me with. Ever dreamed of embarking on legendary quest, unlocking hidden secrets, and discovering untold riches? Dive into the world of X, Seekers of Fortune, it's the game that's soon to be taking the internet by storm. Sign up today at xseekersoffortune.com and start your journey to greatness. Remember, fortune favors the bold.
See you there. Yeah, no. And, and, and part of the reason why, uh, you know, we're starting here is X Seekers of Fortune from its very, very core is about lost knowledge, lost items, lost places, lost peoples, lost history. Um, even from the beginning when I, I, I made the initial pitch to you for a game, that game was called Lost Arts. And even though it was a different mm-hmm. setting, it was still very much about that was a fantasy setting in which magic was mostly gone from the world. And there were people who were trying to recover magic that was practiced by like a, a long lost civilization of, of sorcerers and, and wizards and stuff. And, and we moved away from that and we just focused mm-hmm. on what about if we did like an adventure world and actually talked about lost civilizations in that context, which is perfect. And so mm-hmm. Atlantis is kind of the big the big one, right? Like it, you know, if you ask anyone, Hey, yeah. w- what, what's the first lost civilization that comes to mind? They're going to say Atlantis. Um, so I th- yeah, I would mm-hmm. definitely say you're starting with the banger. You're starting with a number one. Uh, if we, this is a continuing series, I'm almost, just, I'm almost interested to hear where you go from here because Atlantis is the main course. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to learn more about it because all I know is wrapped up in, you know, it's a cross between speculation and, you know, a rumor basically. Yeah. So to give people maybe a little bit of teaser of, of where this might go, it's like today's going to be a lot about talking about Atlantis um, and then future episodes. Should we do another one of these? Uh, we'll be looking at things that point to the possibility of some kind of historical truth to Atlantis. So today we're just going to delve into sort of the basics of the Atlantis story. What do we know about it? And, uh, mm-hmm. and then in future episodes, we'll, we'll get into some, some more interesting uh, stuff uh, that points to what, what, what may have, have happened uh, in human history further back than we can currently see clearly. So, yeah, uh, there's, you know, there's a big cutoff for like how far back we can really or earnestly say that we have like written historical documents. So. Yeah. And for a long time, we, you know, the, I, I, I forget exactly what they said it was, but I mean, for a very long time, it seemed like, you know, human civilization recorded history was only like, you know, five, you know, I forget if it's like 5,000 or 8,000 years old, but you know, the idea that we had that, that people were capable of, of, architecture and building and writing and everything more than 10,000 years ago was, was a, was a no fly zone for, for archeology. span And, uh, you know, they basically maintained that, you know, not, no, no, everyone was a hunter gatherer, you know, if you go 10,000 BC or, or further back and, you know, a future episode will actually delve into the moment where that all changed. But in the 1960s, um, archaeologists uh, discovered in Turkey a site which is known as Gobekli Tepe and that was the first site that had um, been dated to around 12,000 BC and uh, sorry 12,000 years ago Um, and so the idea that uh, you you had a a site that was this sophisticated really was uh, kind mm-hmm. of shaking the foundations of what we thought we understood about human history. And I, like I said, I won't go deep into Gobekli Tepe in this episode, but it is part of, um, you know, the roadmap of, of future episodes for sure. So 
Okay, so so that's good to have that as a pinpoint. 1960s, we found, you said Obekli Tepli? Go Beckley Tepe. Go. Go Beckley Tepli. Tepe, yeah. A lot of this okay. episode is going to be... that was 12... Uh, it was about... 1,000 BCE. Yeah, 12,000 years ago. So about, uh, you know, we're 2,000 years into this this millennia, or, or cent, not cent, so, century millennia. So 10,000 BCE. Yeah, I mean, the, the it, you know... The whole, you know, B.C. A.D. thing kind of makes it more confusing. But, yeah, 12,000 years okay. from, from today, give or take. So, Joel, I, I got to okay. ask you. Got it. What, what do you know about Atlantis? What, 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 you know, when you picture Atlantis, what do you picture? Well, okay, when I picture Atlantis, I picture like a, um, almost like a, a plate of like a, a a circular plate over the ocean that is like you know very turquoise and green with like you know trees and and water flowing through it like some sort of major oasis like i said on the ocean <coughs> and then that's like you know and very greek i would say it, it it i know it probably predates the greeks but you kind of imagine i kind of imagine greek culture living on Atlantis, even though I don't think that they would have. And the, I'm not going to say the only other thing I know, but the only th other thing that comes top to mind is that, and you probably have this in your notes, is that Atlantis was referred to by, I want to say it was Plato in his writings. Yep, exactly so right. So it's like we have some, yeah, we have some written record, but that, I mean, the, but we're talking like that is like, what, what does it say? It's not a uh, First, a first-hand account is probably not even a second-hand account. Him referring to Atlantis is probably like a third-hand account at best. Yeah, so that's that's exactly right. So Plato is where this whole idea of Atlantis comes from, and we learn about it through some of his writings mm -hmm. that I'll talk about later. Um, but before we delve specifically into what he wrote about Atlantis, I thought maybe it'd be useful just to, to kind of refresh everyone on who Plato was and what world he inhabited. So, Joel, I have a question for you. Plato, okay? Yeah. When you think of Plato, mm -hmm. when do you think of Plato existing? That's a great question. And now I'm trying to remember which, you know, because there's the, does it go Plato, Socrates, and then the other guy? Now, because now I'm trying to like sort them out. Is Plato the granddaddy or is he the one so of the So Socrates students? was like Plato's mentor, you know, or at least who Plato looked up to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I would, if I was taking a stab at it, I would say he might have been walking the earth maybe 500 years before BCE, I would say, or BC. Yep, that's almost like, you know, 500 years before Christ. Yep, that's a really good yeah. guess. So he was for, he was born 428 years before Christ in Athens. And, oh, wow. and to kind of put that into perspective nice. for people, right? I think people have a fairly clear idea of their life in relation to Christ's life, you know, being 2000 years ago. Um, and then like, mm -hmm. I think everything that happened before, before Christ gets a lot of foggier and confusing in people's minds. Not that between the, the, yes. the 2000 years between Christ's birth and, 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 and the present day are super clear to most people, but to put it into context, um, <clears throat> relative to when Christ was alive, uh, to when Plato was alive would be similar to when we were alive compared to Shakespeare and Galileo. Okay. So like if that helps kind of mm -hmm. give an idea of the passage of time. Yeah. So 
he's born in Athens and he's born in Athens in the golden age of Athens. This is the time where you, when you think of the height of Greek culture, you're thinking about culture flourishing and education, the sciences, everything uh, that you think about, economic, political, democracy, all those things, the golden age of Athens, that's the world Plato, Plato is born into. And okay. the the world also, his world was also uh, rife with, with conflict because, um, Joel, are you familiar with the Peloponnesian War? This... Uh, um, that's not... Is that the war that the... I don't think I don't think I'm right about this. I was going to say, is that the war that the Odyssey is based on, or the Iliad? I should say that I don't know, um, but I could find out. Okay. But uh, the Peloponnesian War was the war between Athens and Sparta. So sort of the in- okay, then that's a different war. That, so it's a civil war. Yeah, basically. Yeah, but in that that, that time, ancient mm-hmm. Greece was made up of city states. So they probably didn't regard themselves mm-hmm. as being engaged in a civil war. They probably regarded themselves as mm-hmm. as just a clash of titans sort of thing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it would be like, I don't know, it'd be like pre-colonial America going to war with each other, you know, if like Georgia and New York before the signing of the Declaration of Independence had had a fight with each yeah, other. Yeah, that would be a, a good example. Uh, and so the Peloponnesian War starts about three years before Plato was born in mm-hmm. 431 BC. Oh, wow. And so okay. Athens is definitely in the middle of a conflict when when he's born. Um, mm-hmm. so he's, he's born, uh, into an affluent family. Um, Plato's father claimed to have been a descendant of the King of Athens. His mother, uh, is said to have been a, a relative of Solon who will become relevant later in the story. And, um, and this is the okay. world and sort of the social class that Plato grew up in. And as a young man, so you're t- wait, you're telling me that he's a he's a rich affluent kid. Yeah, he's a kind of a rich affluent kid, you know. He uh ah boy. you know, pretty high self sense of self, I'm sure. Uh at least when I'm, he was young. Yeah. <laughs> probably it probably was graded with smileys and, you know, like a, a gifts from Zeus or something like that on his report cards. Mm-hmm. So it's like you got four lightning bolts in in philosophy, Plato. Good for you. Yes, because as everyone knows, they were graded on the Zeus scale in ancient Greece. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so okay, so Socrates, so 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 Plato deeply admired uh, as a young man Socrates, who was famous around Athens for being really annoying and asking people a lot of questions, and. Uh, you know, I'm sure this is... They killed him for Yeah, this. he was literally killed for being too annoying. I think that's for, mostly yes. accurate. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, and, and honestly, that's something I aspire to do. So anyway... Um, <laughs> You're on your way, sir. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Plato is significant to human history as he is kind of credited as laying a lot of the foundations of... Western philosophy and science. A lot of people are, are familiar with mm-hmm. some of his works, whether they be The Republic or Allegory of the Cave. Um, Plato is somebody that I think a lot of people just, they don't maybe not, don't know a lot about him, but they associate him as being one of the big uh, intellectuals of human, of human history. Um, he was very concerned with the nature of knowledge and also spent a lot of time just reflecting on what would make for like an ideal just society. And 
this concept of an ideal just society is kind of how we get to Atlantis. So one of the ways Mm -hmm. that Plato wrote, which was probably influenced by Socrates, was that he, he would often write his exploration of ideas as though they were a dialogue between individuals. And so oftentimes his works mm-hmm. are referred to as dialogues. And the dialogue that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. today, the dialogues we're going to talk about today, there's two of them. It's called uh, Timaeus and Critias. And I am pronouncing those wrong, despite watching a lot of videos about how to pronounce them beforehand. So all I know from those videos is that I pronounced them wrong right now in the podcast. But Timaeus and Critias. Well, uh, mm-hmm. well, at least you can get ahead of the comment section that I'm sure was just itching to type on their keyboard the correct pronunciation in the way that it would be listed in the dictionary. They, you know, they now know that you're aware that you're not pronouncing them correctly. But I can't blame you. These are ancient white Greek words that probably don't don't even exist anymore. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, this this is beyond my realm okay. of okay. of knowledge, and as I said before, I am not a, a professional scholar at all, mostly just a troll. So, mm-hmm. um, that's very true. <laughs> the purpose of these dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, I'm going to say it many different mm-hmm. ways throughout this episode, uh, was to explore the nature okay. of the world. It, it might as well be an inconsistency. Yes, exactly. So, Timaeus okay. and Critias were two two different people like the names of these dialogues are actually named for the people who were involved them in them and so Timaeus was a Pythagorean philosopher and a statesman uh, from southern Italy mm-hmm. at that time he was a mathematical philosopher um, and so obviously an intellectual that you know Plato would have been aware of Critias on the other hand was a, a relative of Plato and he was a prominent Athenian politician and a member of what they called the 30 tyrants, which was an oligarch uh, regime that had ruled Athens prior to the Peloponnesian War. So we learn about Atlantis through these dialogues. And so essentially, uh, these dialogues were written around 360 BC. Um, So he was born in 428, so what, 28 and then 60. Uh, But things count down. Um, so he's probably, uh, what, 68 or so at this time. Does that math add up? Oh, wow. He, he, um, can you give me the dates again? I'll double check. 428 to 360. I think he would be, wait, no, uh, shoot. <laughs> I totally did it wrong. <laughs> My guess is that he was, cause, uh, cause you count down, right? So you go from 428 to 400, that's two, 28. And then from yes. 400 to 360, that's 40. So I think around 68 makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did it wrong. I did the math wrong, and I have at least an eight. I have a four and an eight, but I think 68 makes sense. But so to give you an idea, that means Plato was not slouching in his older age. That's a, a especially for back then, that means he's like entering the twilight years of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of people make fun of like everybody died at 35 back in the past. That's not true. It's just the infant mortality rate was so high that it brought down the averages. So, you know, it's like if you made it past age 10, you were probably going to make it to like well past into your 60s or 70s. But still, 68, even in today's America, 68 is like, okay, grandpa, probably should wrap up your affairs. Um, So that he's no slouch. Now, I do want to step in here just to clarify one thing. 
Plato was like, these are like the original shower conversations, right? Like these were, these aren't actually two people having a conversation. There's Plato is making up the dialogue that the two people are having. Yeah. At least to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, to the best of our knowledge, this is just the way that Plato would espouse his ideas, which I think, I I think would be really annoying. Like, because, you know, it's like, I think it would be like knowing a stand-up and you go see their show and then they like are like talking about you, but none of it actually happened. It's just like they're like, Oh yeah, my, my friend my friend Danny, he's always talking about his witch kinks. You know, I would love to see what he would do if he had a <laughs> opportunity to be burned at the stake. You know, like whatever. Like not that that made any sense, but you, you know what I mean? Like I'm sure people were I do get what you're saying. Like, well this is a misrepresentation. You, you have experience with me. When when people misrepresent me, I get pretty upset. So, yeah, the idea that Plato's just going around and be like, eh, I think this is what that guy would say yeah. about this humongous topic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure he had Socrates rolling in his grave. So, uh, Critias was a relative of Plato uh, as his mother. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about how his mother had claimed to have been a relative of, of Solon. And that is the same relative that Critias mm-hmm. is said to have been uh, a descendant of. I think, uh, I, I believe I may, may get okay. this wrong. I think Critias said that Solon was his great uncle or something like that, or great grandfather, some, something along that, that line. Um, so the whole story of Atlantis, as we know it, via Plato, comes via Critias, via Solon. And Solon was a, was a, 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 a Greek statesman, and he traveled to Egypt. And when he was in Egypt, he visited the, the city of Sais, which again, pronounced uh-huh. very wrong, where he encountered some priests. Mm-hmm. And in talking to the priests, um, he was relayed the story of Atlantis. And when asked about when the events occurred of Atlantis, the Egyptian priest said that it had happened 9,000 years prior to their time. So we're already talking 2,500 years and then add another Uh 9,000. And we are are getting pretty close to a point in time that people would speculate that the Great Flood would have happened about about 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. 11 11 and a half, 12,000 years ago. I got to start taking... Okay, I'm going to start taking notes. I'm going to put 12,000 years ago, Great Flood, just to to remind myself. Yeah, and and because as you'll see through this episode, but into future episodes, this time period of, of around 12,000 years ago, 11 and a half, 12,000 years ago, is very significant to starting to, to, to ask questions about what may have been happening deeper into human history than we're currently aware. Yeah. It sounds like if Roland Emmerich was making a movie about the Great Flood, he would probably call it 12,000 BC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he probably would have done something like that. Based on his 10,000 BC mm-hmm. movie, which was just a bunch yeah. of cavemen throwing spears at each other, uh, I think. So probably probably not accurate. That was probably more like 30,000 BC or 50,000 BC. I don't know. I, I, I You know, my, my take on it is I think that, I mean, it's just like uh-huh. now, right? Like you can find people throwing spears deep in the jungles of the Amazon. There are uncontacted tribes. True. So. Humans have always progressed at different paces. And so I think it's, you know, mm-hmm. we, we talk a little bit about this in Ex Seekers of Fortune, the idea that our lost civilization, the Arakai, probably existed alongside more nomadic peoples in some regions, right? Like they're definitely mm-hmm. were quote unquote barbarians. Yeah. Um, so Solon. No, that's a good point. 
that's i was just going to say that's a good point because that's like yeah like you said today we can find that and it was like what humans could rapidly achieve when they come together for the first time and work together to build up something you know greater than them it, you know just a few generations you can see society go from th spear throwing to you know eat like actually having food vendors on the street corner or something like that and having streets and having you know mass production of like you know nutrition yeah so that's a very good point danny like it, it could just happen it could have just happened in one small pocket of the world and they were basically having to defend themselves from everybody else uh, outside of their sphere and, and we see what happened uh, you know in the last couple hundred years where the west through colonialism basically pushed countries like japan out of the middle ages into the modern era almost overnight you know and so there's there's definitely a lot of precedent for technologically advanced civilizations pulling other peoples who are less advanced into a more modern world not a value judgment on whether that's a good or a bad thing i mean obviously the way that's happened in more recent history mm -hmm. was not a good thing but just in general that is the feature mm -hmm. of human history that we've seen time and time again so solon comes back yeah. from Egypt with with okay. with, so with the story of Atlantis, and this is a little <laughs> bit of some of the key facts that that we we learned about it. So, supposedly the civilization existed um, somewhere beyond the pillars of Hercules, is what what we're told. The pillars of Hercules. Today we know of the pillars of Hercules by its modern name, which is the Strait of Gibraltar. So. This is a very Mediterranean location. For those who are not aware, Strait of Gibraltar is kind of how you, you pass from the Atlantic Ocean into the Mediterranean Sea. Part of it is Africa. The other part of it is Europe. And um, so we're told that the, the, the civilization of Atlantis was beyond the pillars of Hercules and that it was, large, it was roughly the size of Turkey plus Libya. So a, a pretty large landmass. Um, okay. Plato, Plato, Plato claims that, that Atlantis was resource rich and technologically advanced. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to talk maybe a little bit about what it means to be technologically advanced from a historical perspective, right? A lot of times when we think about being technologically advanced, we're thinking about what is going to what is the US going to be like in 50 years or what is Japan like now right so you, you know you're thinking about <laughs> what <laughs> you know like we we're, it's it's always about like you know the future is going to be bigger and better and we're going to have iterations of what yeah. we have now that have been approved upon but that hasn't yeah mm -hmm. uh, I, I think to, to I think to put a my own little spin on this I often I think 10 years, more than 10 years ago, like back in the early 2010s, I would often say we are now living in the future era. Like we like we have such a hard time understanding what it's like in the past because we have been saturated by like, you know, the everything that would have been speculated as being like science fiction technology for the most part has already come to us and is in the palm of our hands. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like our perspective on what technological advancement means that we're talking about like thinking computers and AI these days. We're talking about, you know, mech suits that humans can put on to do 10 times the lifting or something like that. I mean, like we have such a skewed perspective, so it is really good for you to set the table. What is technologically advanced mean in the historical context? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and a couple points on that. One is 
One is that throughout most of human history, it wasn't thought that the future was going to be more advanced than the past. A lot of the Dark Ages were, were lived in the shadow of the Roman Empire with technologies and capabilities that were lost, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so throughout human history, we, we see the rise of civilizations and then a collapse and an inability to reproduce what these past civilizations were able to do at their height. And so mm. in a modern mindset, everything is, you know, an exponential curve up. The you know technology only gets better and better and better as you go in the future, but the ancients understood that mm-hmm. collapse was real, dark ages were real. Um, so the idea that there might have been a technologically advanced society that predated you know the Egyptians and 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 the Greeks and the Romans and the Assyrians and everyone that we think of Mesopotamia is very is 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 very much in line with what we've seen throughout history of of the rise of civilizations and the fall. The other thing I would say about being technologically advanced is that what does it mean to to have technology or how do we get technology via science, right? Like we develop things, we have an idea, we iterate on it, and we go down these rabbit holes, right? Like, you know, think about the revolutions in science. Like we split the atom and then all these things come from splitting the atom or we figure out how to make a combustible engine and all these technologies follow from some kind of innovation, right? Yeah, let's take electricity, for example. I mean, they figured out, or the light bulb, I guess, more specifically, they figured out how to generate electricity. They found out how to flow it through a light bulb and cities overnight. Like, the people's lives changed immensely because now all of a sudden, they like, night was no longer, like, a time when everybody had to do nothing because you could then have a nightlife. Exactly. Um, I guess another example and time for example like it, it, it i believe somebody wrote that the, how annoyed they were that they had to measure their days and minutes and hours after the invention of like the traditional clock versus before it would just be like you know they, they would just block off their days based off like you know before the sun was in the sky and after the sun was going down and things like that yeah 100 <clears> percent. <throat> i think the point i'm getting at here is mm-hmm. depending on what thread you're pulling on the technology that follows from it is very different. Like the threat of electricity is very different perhaps than, I don't know, the, the, the thread of, you know, uh, how to smelt certain alloys or something like that. I, I don't even know if smelt and alloy belong yeah. in the right sentence. Again, just a healthy reminder to everyone at home. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> we are just trying to talk about it confidently for your own entertainment. So, <laughs> yeah, don't write it. Don't source us for your history paper on Atlantis that you're probably going to not like land well. But I do get I do understand what you're saying. It's like we can, you know, technology isn't just one one thing with an equally rising ceiling. It's like t- the technology to create metal versus the technology to create light are two totally different things that have like, you know, gone on in different ways the technology to share information remember like how far away is the telegraph from the internet but they're the same you know, they're like the same kind of technology sending information across long distances and and like you could say the telegraph was a pre-internet in some ways uh, it's just what you could send uh so yeah it makes it makes sense so there's been different technologies that advanced at different ways at different times 100 percent. do you have an idea of what kind of technologies Atlantis had? I don't. I don't have any ideas about what kind of technologies Atlantis had, but it was just simply to state that they don't need to have the same technologies we do to be technologically advanced. They could have had 
True. different lines of technology. You know, one thing I think about is like sound, right? Like, do we really understand sound and vibration? Have we fully leveraged everything that's there? I don't think so. I think we understand light a lot better than we understand sound. I don't know that that's true. But I mean, I think we spend a lot more time focusing on 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 light and energy from light um, as as a means of, of power uh, rather than thinking about can mm-hmm. could could sound because sound is just sound waves. They're just vibrational waves. Could those vibrational waves be used for some purpose that we haven't even spent really a lot of time trying to figure out? But yeah, or or would our pre our ancestors have found what we can what we know we can do with sound but then actually have a novel solution to it like right now when you're saying this i mean who knows atlantis could have just been ahead of the game on irrigation for all we know yep yep so there's 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 a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways that a society could be a civilization could be technologically advanced that are different from our own okay so here at this Mm -hmm. point i think what i would like to do is just go ahead and and read to you um, some direct excerpts from from uh, from Plato's writings about um, what what Atlantis is said to have looked like, and this is somewhat of a longer passage, but I think it's worth reading. Um, so, if uh, if there's no objections, I'll I'll jump right into it. Okay, I'm all yours. There was an abundance of wood for carpenters' work and sufficient maintenance for tame and wild animals. Moreover, there were a great number of elephants in the island, and there was a provision for animals of every kind, both for those which live in lakes and marshes and rivers, and also for those which live in mountains and on plains, and therefore for the animal which is the largest and most voracious of them. Also, whatever fragrant things there are in the earth, whether roots or herbage or woods, or distilling drops of flowers or fruits, grew and thrived in that land. And again, the cultivated fruit of the earth, both dry edible fruit and other species of food, which we call by the general name of legumes, and the fruits having hard rinds, affording drinks and meats and ointments and good store of chestnuts and the like, which may be used to play with, and are fruits which spoil, with keeping and the pleasant kinds of desserts which console us after dinner, when we were all full and tired of eating all these things, that sacred island lying beneath the sun brought forth fair and wondrous and infinite abundance. All these things they received from the earth, and they employed themselves in constructing their temples and palaces and harbors and docks. And they arranged the whole country in the following manner. First of all, they bridged over the zones of sea which surrounded the ancient metropolis and made a passage into and out of the royal palace. They began to build the palace and then the habitation of the god and their ancestors. This they continued to ornament in successive generations, every king surpassing the one who came before them with the utmost of his power until they made the building a marvel to behold for size and for beauty. And beginning from the sea, they dug a canal 300 feet in width and 100 feet in depth and 50 stadia in length, which they carried through the outermost zone making a passage from the sea up to this, which became a harbor, and leaving an opening sufficient to enable the largest vessels to find ingress. Moreover, they divided the zones of land, which parted the zones of sea, constructing bridges of such a width as would leave a passage for a single tremere to pass out of one into the other, and roofed them over, and there was a way underneath for the ships, for the banks of the zones were raised considerably above the water. 
Now, the largest of the zones into which a passage was cut from the sea was three stadia in breadth, and the zone of land which came next to it equal in breadth. And the next two, as well the zone of water as of land, were two stadia. And the one which surrounded the central island was a stadium only in width. The island in which the palace was situated had a diameter of five stadia. This and the zones and the bridge, which was the sixth part of the stadium in width, they surrounded, were surrounded by a stone wall. On either side, placing towers and gates on the bridges where the sea passed in. The, so, the stone which was used in the work they quarried from underneath the center of the island and from underneath the zones on the outer walls as well as the inner side. One kind of stone was white, another was black, and a third red. And as they quarried, they at the same time hollowed out docks double width and having roof formed out of the native rock. Some of their buildings were simple, but in others they put different stones together, which they intermingled for the sake of ornament, to be a natural source of delight. The entire circuit of the wall, which went around the outermost, they covered with a coating of brass, and the circuit of the next wall they coated with tin. And the third, which encompassed the citadel, flashed with the red light of Ori Calculum. So Ori Calculum in and of itself is a very interesting idea that I've, I've been reading about, which is a legendary oh, metal. Okay, okay well, I'm just going <laughs> to, I just want to point out, there's a lot of interesting ideas. You went through a lot right there because uh, let's, let's, I, I just want to, just for my own mental, mental like clarification, let me break down what I heard there, which was, it started with kind of a land of milk and honey kind of thing where it's like, uh, Atlantis is plentiful with like everything that we Atlanteans would want, you know, food of all kinds is in abundance there in Atlantis. Yep. And then it moved on to kind of a description of not only the island, I guess it's it's an island is what I'm assuming, but like, you know, the, the harbor that is there at the island, this great technological achievement of of having dug out a man-made harbor for, for the island. Um, now that got very biblical in the boring sense of like, what is a stadia, Danny? Stadia is about <laughs> six hundred and six just... feet. It's a it's a historical term for distance. Oh, it's wow. roughly six hundred that... feet. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, so that was that was interesting, but it was also like I'd have to like really sit down and break that down and uh, and probably have somebody like diagram what they were saying on a like on a, a screen for me to fully digest it. But it did sound massive and epic like nothing you would have seen at the time and then the thing i really footnote or keynoted there coming towards the end was that they said that the color scheme of atlantis is is essentially white black and red which is very different than what i said i imagine it to be from my uh cultural understanding which was more like i said more turquoise and and gold so that was i thought that was of note you know that's a very interesting color scheme for a society it's very imperialistic if you will like that reminds me of more of the empire from star wars yeah uh, in terms of colors and and then i i really perked up at the idea that the of using certain stones for ornate art that was just there that reminds me of stained glass i don't think it i don't think it's the same thing but just the concept of you know beautiful art that doesn't need to be there but is there for the pleasure of having art around which i think we need more of okay so those were like the big takeaways i had from that segment but uh now that i've kind of laid that out 
for for my for so the audience knows what I remember and actually took up from there. Tell me more about this mythic metal. Okay, so just jumping on what you said real quick. So, in more plain language, mm-hmm. oftentimes the way that Atlantis is described is uh, a, a a a series of concentric islands that are rings with alternating zones of water and land that has like a central canal dug in. So like. If you can imagine, and, and there, there, there are artist renderings of this, but it's like you'll see land and then a big ring of, circ- of ring of water and then an island inside of that ring of water that has like a big ring of water, these like almost like moats. And then there's an, a, a, mm-hmm. an island in the middle and then there's a central channel that cuts in between. There's, there's an element of it that actually kind of reminds okay. me of Attack on Titan, like with the walls and like the inter sanctums. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it definitely sounds like in my mind, it, it is a design that I've seen before that I often associate with ancient, the ancient world. Yes. Yes. And so what's interesting is that this Ori, uh, Ori calculum is this ancient metal that was supposed to shine red. It is said that the mines had been depleted, so it's not in existence anymore. You can't get it anymore. Some people speculate that it was some sort of alloy, um, but interestingly, and I, I have to do more reading on this, there was a, a shipwreck um, of a Sicilian ship recently uh, found within the last decade that they believe may have um, ori calculum ingots on it. So that is something oh, that wow. I think is really, really neat and something I want to learn more about. But I just learned a lot about it as I was reading more deeply about Atlantis in preparation for this episode. Um, but again, just the idea of a lost metal that was widely used in the ancient world that we don't have, or we don't see like that, that kind of stuff really excites me. I'm like super into, to just imagining about all the things that were, that no longer are, that we can't know about, or you know, what really gets me going uh-huh. is thinking about, well, what is that? I, I'm, I, <laughs> I am drawing something to for relevant right now. I have a whiteboard next to me and I am like making a drawing of what I imagine Atlantis to look like from a bird's eye view. But go, yeah, what really excites you? What really excites me is this idea that there's stuff that we don't know about in the world that was written down and those records still exist. We just haven't found them. The idea that whether they're buried somewhere or they're in a vault, maybe in the Vatican, the idea that there's stuff out there. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll get in there someday, Danny. Well, that's our adventure. Take that. (laughs) All right. Wait, I do want to show you this. Uh, So this is what I imagine the uh, island to look like from a bird eye view. That is very close to the black the artist renderings. Yeah, I would say that's a that's a pretty good a pretty good description of them of of what okay. it would like. Just the basic shape, and like I said, it does it does feel like something. You know what? It reminds me of the design that our artist came up with for the the saw stav. What is the it guardian stave? The, the guardian stav. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stave. You know, that the concentric circles with openings between it with some sort of central like gym of it all. Yeah. Um, there was something that you said. Oh, uh, just going back to the rare metal thing. I just wanted to say, you know, that's something that has interested me too. like rare old, you know, um, lost resources that maybe had already been mined from the planet before we got to them or we lost the recipe to make them. And uh, I think that's like something that I think the Arakai and X Seekers of Fortune had access to that we haven't fully fleshed out, but you know, the idea that they had a material that is just now being rediscovered that enabled them to have like this technology that was beyond what you would imagine 
uh, a civilization to have that would have read as magic. Yes, a, 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 exactly. So, mm-hmm. the, the 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 so that's sort of what Atlantis is said to have been like. It was supposed to have been a powerful nation. So you know, we think about. I like to think of it almost the way we think about ancient Rome. Right? There were so many different. Uh, tribes and peoples living contemporary with ancient Rome, but everyone in that time looked at ancient Rome as as sort of like a, a juggernaut, a Goliath, you know, a, a civilization, a civilization that you know whether wh- whether loved or hated was viewed as as of having a tremendous a pa- amount of power above the rest. Um, and and I imagine that that for for the ancient peoples that were contemporaries with Atlantis, if 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 such peoples existed or such a civilization existed. That is kind of how they may have been regarded, right? And so Plato, Plato relays this story that was brought to us by Solon as a means of talking again about just societies and, and how societies should be uh, constructed. And in the story, the idea is that, you know, given how powerful and marvelous they were, they just became, you know, kind of overcome with hubris. They, you know, they thought they were, you know, it, it has a very um, Tower of Babel feel. Right, this idea that yeah. God can't touch me, uh, which you know I interpret as, you know, honestly, kind of where we are today, which is humans thinking that you know the Earth is under our control. Where you know we 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 I think most people intellectually will say, yeah, of course we have no control over the Earth. The Earth is much more powerful than us, but we all live as though, you know, the Earth is 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 mm-hmm. is under our control. So. Yeah. You're like three localized natural disasters away from being, you know, set back to a tribalism or something to that effect. Oh, 100%. I mean, it could happen any day. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So so Plato tells us the story about the fall of Atlantis in the terms of a war. And what is said is that that, you know, they had a formidable navy, as you might expect. And Atlantis went to war with whoever... Th- the ancestors of the Athenians are, which I think is very convenient for this story. Um, and the Athenians beat the uh, Atlanteans probably because they were too, they had too much hubris. They were too uh, cocky or arrogant, whatever. And they get rebuffed. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the Athenians were the ones that beat them. So, you know, the, given that this is an Athenian story, you know, that sounds pretty on, 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 on par for how human history is written about. Um, yeah. It's it's giving me yeah it's definitely giving me ancient history vibes of like you know that big you know that big titan of a a nation over there yeah well we we took them on or they they somehow influenced us I I could I could get into it but you know a lot of ancient texts you know they have they've uh, I think uncovered that basically the people who said that they were you know they fought off the big bad were actually just the next generation of the big bad who were kind of trying to distance themselves from said culture yeah so i I don't mean to distract too much but you know that's like if i were to prescribe anything i would say oh this means that probably the uh, athenians might have actually had this society and then they wanted to you know just for some reason distance themselves from like the evils of that society yeah i mean well that that's a spec more speculation that would definitely track though i mean that's that that is often Mm -hmm. a pattern we see throughout history um so anyway there's this big war between atlantis and athens athens beats atlantis according to the story and then Mm -hmm. uh and then shortly thereafter atlantis is said to have experienced a terrible earthquake and and and, and in the course of one day and one night sunk into the sea 
And following that, all that was left was sort of an impassable barrier of mud. So, hmm. you know, when, when we That's think about the time, timing, you know, we think about the Great Flood as just kind of being this big flood that happened. You know, I think a lot of people picture it as a bunch of rain and everything. Um, but honestly, uh-huh. most likely, something like that would probably be the, the result of a larger cataclysm. You know, what, what would happen, for, for instance, if, you know, an asteroid hit the ice caps? You know, you would see pretty rapid sea level change worldwide pretty quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the idea that maybe a, 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 a powerful nation that occupied a particularly vulnerable geography being swallowed up as a result of a disaster, I think, is extremely plausible. And we don't know. You know, this, this, we don't know if, if, if Plato viewed this as history that he was relaying, if this was meant as an allegory or if this was just a myth, but it has captured the imagination of people for a very, very long time. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people embellish and, and, and imagine it as being this magical place. Um, but for me, it could just very well have been the Rome before Rome, Right. Or, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there were a lot of Romes before Romes, the Assyrians and the, the Persians and Egyptians, maybe. Yeah, just many, many great civilizations. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think as as we, we have this conversation, we look at it, you know, I'm so interested in knowing, was there really a civilization like this out there? And in, in the future episodes of this of this series, if we do them, I want to talk to you about the different things that might line up to some of the other things in the story, such as uh, the Younger Dryas, such as the Reichart structure, things like that. So, uh, okay, yeah. So that's that's the that's the one hundred and one on Atlantis. I didn't want to 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 go too much deeper. Okay. I thought this would be a good primer, and would be also mm-hmm. a good way to kind of transition into a discussion about what you see as from the story that I just shared with you as being some of the influences that you can, can clearly see having seeped into X seekers of fortune. Yeah. Well, when we first started talking about the game or maybe before we started talking about the game or early on in the process, I do remember you talking about like some of your favorite, like little nuggets of these ancient lost civilizations and, you know, the, um, those untold series, histories. And I remember, you know, I will admit that I got a little bit in my head. I was just thinking about the ancient aliens TV series where they do a lot of speculation beyond, beyond speculation. They just make up things wholeheartedly, a whole cloth about like, you know, how the ancient world was visited by aliens and how that, you know, aliens could have like basically built the ancient world, which, you know, has definitely, it, it's, it's, fun entertainment in fact if you want to if you want to experience those kind of stories um there's a youtuber uh what's what's her name bell um bell, Define. bell. like give me one second not bell Define. that's her last name is bell um something bell i'm sorry yeah <laughs> i'm looking it up right now alexander graham bell no, no. <laughs> um ancient aliens ancient ends bell um, 
Darn it. Yeah, there she is. Gabby Bell. She has a few episodes of her YouTube series where she will just review an episode of Ancient Aliens. And, and you know, it's just the wildest uh, stuff that you've heard, uh, honestly. She's, she's really good at it. But basically... I remember, I, but, you know, whenever you go into a creative project, whatever, you know, I'm sure there's things that have seeped into X Seekers of Fortune that are very much mine that you've sort of like, you know, just just the erosion of us putting our ideas against each other. It's going to seep through and in, into the cloth. So the ancient civilization, I mean, especially once I opened up my eyes to us making a story about archaeology or, or archaeological style adventures, pop, pulp adventures, it was, you know, it was bound. I, I think I became much more open to the idea of uh, doing an ancient lost civilization. Now, ours is named the Arakai, mm -hmm. uh, and I know you coined that, but it started by I think Arakai was at first like some sort of great leader, um, and then eventually it just became the name of the civilization. And um, what I'm seeing here is the idea of like the mystery of a lost technologies. Mm -hmm. That's definitely seeped into the game and a place that was once a robust, um, you know, land, like I, I use the term land of milk and honey, you know, this like great prosperous place having been laid waste and turned into a desert of some sort or just basically have disappeared off the face of the world, um, which is uh, definitely where the Arakai are at. They're more myth than they are history when our story starts. So just like the Atlanteans uh, or what Atlantis was is, you know, I think historians would say it's myth more so than it is history. Uh, that's where the Arakai are at this point um, in our story. So I think those are the two big things I see. Is there other aspects that, especially now that you're reading into this and filling in your knowledge of Atlantis, was there things that you were surprised about? Like, oh, I, I guess that, did make it into the game or oh if i had known that i would have tried putting it in or maybe we should try to incorporate that i think the 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 ori calculum was like the big thing where it's like yeah we had kind of talked around this idea of them having this mythical substance that you know i think from our perspective it was like vibranium you know kind of thing um mm -hmm. but this whole idea of this ori calculum um i think was like oh cool like that also kind of lines up with what we're doing but for me it's like big society technologically advanced, gets wiped out by a disaster, possibly because of their own hubris. I think you would say that the Arakai's downfall is at least in part due to their own hubris or the hubris of some in positions of power in their society. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Um, <laughs> we're, we're seeing that now. It's like, you know, uh, I, I, it's so sad to think of all the lives lost, especially in a pre-democratic society because the person at the top had a harebrained idea or way more confidence and was writing checks his butt couldn't cash and then everybody below him all suffered as much if not more than he than they did yes absolutely so yeah i, I mean i think mm -hmm. i think that you pretty much nailed it i mean those are the things that i take away and, and and you know this is why i thought we should start with atlantis because atlantis is probably the biggest inspiration for the Arakai, and the Arakai are kind of the core of x seekers of fortune's historical mystery um, I, I would you say though that the Arakai are a little bit more? I've always taken them to be Egyptian slash Mesopotamian coded. Uh, a little bit like it's kind of weird. I I kind of I kind of picture them as being 
Mesopotamia and um, North Africa mixed with Amazonian. Um, mm-hmm. Like this idea of a, of a, of because I mean, if you I mean, you look at the map, and again, Taish is not Earth, but if you look at the map, Africa is not that far away from Brazil, right? And the idea that you know you could have an advanced civilization mm-hmm. that That's went between Brazil and Africa and, and West Africa, um, I think is at least ripe for storytelling. Especially, yeah, especially with the fantasy elements that we're incorporating in that we know because the fortunate thing is we know that the Arakai exist in our world, the world that we're creating. Versus, you know, so we can say yes, they were able to have a cross continental culture because of this technology that we're still like you know developing for them but you know the i think we've talked about like they could travel over the sea whether it be through the air or you know kind of hovering over the sea and it it wouldn't be a ridiculous amount of time for them to go from one continent to another to where they wouldn't have to overload on provisions faster than the nina the pinta and the santa maria you know or the mayflower for sure you know so um Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, man, imagine how miserable those trips were. Oh, so miserable. Imagine being on the Mayflower. It would be terrible. Yeah, cold. Yeah, and then like yes. and imagine the company you're keeping. I mean, these are these are not the type of people I want to be hanging out with. The Puritans? I don't consider myself pre-puritanical. No. If anything, I'd consider myself as having a bit of a witch kink. So, I would say I would not yeah. fit in particularly oh, well. I'm aware. <laughs> Uh-huh. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes joke about being a good Catholic boy, but I definitely think Puritanism is uh, definitely a bridge too far, a few bridges too far, actually, for me. I mean, I'm sure I would be probably burnt at the stake uh, if I were to waltz in. Well, they hung him. I would have probably <laughs> been put up to the gallows had I waltzed into uh, Plymouth Rock. Well, let's call a spade a spade. We're both bad Catholic boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I just happen to be the one who wants to be perceived as a good Catholic boy. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that was a really an educational, like, you know, look, I, especially that passage you read, Danny. I mean, I really hope people can go back and listen to that a few times over uh, because there was some beautiful information. And like I said, if there's a video online of what you read being diagrammed, especially when they were talking about the harbor and the stadiums, uh, you know, being dug out, I would love to see how people have interpreted that. So um, hopefully, hey, Will. Can you get some of those graphics like here, here, maybe here? And yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we can find a couple of links to, to put into the description uh, to illustrate some of those, uh, pa- to illustrate the passages that you read. But that was so wonderful to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I you know, again, I, I said at the oh. beginning, you hey, know. I, I'm, I'm actually getting a call right now. Can we just, uh, Will, can we pause for just a second? Is that f- We're back. All right. Okay. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, so I, I guess what I would say about 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 that episode again, as I said at the top, not not a historian, not a scholar, barely, mm. barely a game designer, um, but yeah, uh, I'm a storyteller, enjoy storytelling, and you know this is something that's inspired me. If you're interested in this, I would highly recommend doing your own research and just digging into it. There's lots and lots and lots of great videos online. Um, this was meant more to whet the appetite for your own education and discovery than to serve as, you know, a robust <laughs> educational document. One hundred percent. Yeah, we are 
we are hobbyists. We are definitely interested in these topics, but we didn't do the rigor that you should expect from your historical um, resources. Uh, just like they don't do the rigor on ancient aliens. Definitely don't be citing that as a source either anytime soon. Yes, yes, yes. So that's that's what I've got today. That was our, our first uh, foray into the past with excavating the unknown. Let mm -hmm. us know in the comments if you're interested in us making more episodes like this, uh, where we can talk about some of the other things from history that influence the game. And uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I just to tease it a little, but this kind of inspired me to maybe do my own one, but mine would be uh, maybe a little less ancient, a little lo little closer to modern. Okay. But uh, I'm just going to tease. I'm just going to tease it by saying dinosaur bones. Okay. I thought for some reason you were going to say Nazis, but I'm relieved that you said dinosaur bones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll figure out if I can make them incorporate the Nazis into it too. Skip them. It's okay. You know. <laughs> yeah. All right, Danny. Well, I think I, I know I learned a lot from that, uh, from everything you had to say there. And I'm actually very much more enthused about like, you know, learning more about uh, what we can discover about Atlantis. And I would love to see more speculation, but I think um, we've kind of gone over the key takeaways and we've kind of gone through everything we wanted to say. So maybe this is a great time to remind you, the audience, hey, did you like this episode? Then show your support for it by liking us uh, on YouTube. Go to our YouTube video. And if you're already there, press the like button and subscribe if you can. And if you want this podcast to come to you when it's hot and fresh, ring the dang bell. Danny, do you got a little ring sound for him? Ding, 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 ding. Yep, that's the dinner bell for the podcast mm -hmm. when it's hot and fresh and ready to go. And if you haven't already, please go to xseekersoffortune.com. There you can sign up for our, uh, for our newsletter regarding the game and its release. Uh, we are coming up to the final months of development, and we're starting to make a big push to marketing the game and trying to get as many people to support us day one on Kickstarter as possible. And if you want to support us day one, Go to our website, xseekersoffortune.com, and do the pre-reservation. That way, for $1, you receive 10% off of your um, Kickstarter uh, package, and you receive a exclusive holofoil card called Ancestral Dream. And that is a card that's not going to come in the base set of the game. If you try to buy the base, if you try to wait and buy the base set later by itself, you will not receive Ancestral Dream. And we don't know when we're going to reprint Ancestral Dream. So this is your one, your first guaranteed opportunity to get the card. And it will probably always be a special version of the card. We're going to make sure of it somehow. Um, and if you haven't tried X Seekers of Fortune yet, and you want to see what this is all about, go to our Discord server. Uh, X Seekers of Fortune on Discord and join us there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. Central Time through about 10 or so Central Time. We will hold Tuesday Night X, and that's when our community gets together to play X Seekers of Fortune through Tabletop Simulator. If you don't know how to play the game, somebody there can teach you. If you're looking for a challenge, we have some of the best players in the world of other games coming to us to play X Seekers of, of Fortune. In fact, next Wednesday, well, when this comes out, probably either it just happened or it's about to happen later tonight we are going to have the first uh finals match for um our first league and it is going to be uh the tiktok creator jay crane oh, was it jay crane 87 to be precise to be precise yeah versus shank pig 
and shank pig is a, a new tiktok creator as well he's he's getting out there but his his big dream is to become a magic the gathering professional player so he's taken to tech seekers of fortune and finds it very satisfying to play and i think you will too if you have uh, a taste for magic the gathering now, Danny, is there anything that you think we've missed in those all those uh, list of plugs? No, no, not at all. But I would say, you know, on the topic of, of Shank, um, you know, Shank is starting to write strategy articles. So if you're if you're new to the game and you're interested in, in playing uh, more competitively, um, keep an eye out for for Shank's strategy articles that'll be coming out. They'll help you get your your footing and uh, and 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 kind of give you a, a good lay of the land for how to how to be competitive in the game. So. Yeah. All right, Danny. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was really excited to read Shank's uh, article, and I can't wait to share it with everybody out there. But he really understands the game in a way that we were we were hoping that people who took it seriously would. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he's teaching us things about the game and helping us make more balanced cards in the future. Um, you know, uh, when we develop the multiplayer version of the game. Sounds like a wonderful time to me. Excellent. All right, Danny. Well, with all that out of the way, you provided us the main topic, the main course today. And I think that means that I'm entitled to present the dessert. Oh, God. Are you ready for something random? Just so much no, but fine. Let's do it. I owe it. All right. Well, Danny, I came up with this idea a whopping two seconds before we press the record button. So I hope it works out. Um, but I thought... You know, you tested me a little bit on my knowledge of ancient history. So I thought I'd test you a little bit of your knowledge of Tex-Mex history or modern Tex-Mex cuisine, maybe I should say. My plan is I'm going to name a few dishes and I want you to accurately describe them. Okay. And I, I'm also going from my memory or, and, <laughs> and a few key uh, graphics online. So we'll see if I'm how good I can be. But let's start with something, you know, just a, uh, something down the middle. How would you describe a quesadilla? A quesadilla is uh, some number of tortillas, usually between one and two, that has been either folded mm -hmm. or laid on top and filled with definitely cheese, most likely the quesadilla variety okay. if you're having it authentically, and then potentially with uh, mm -hmm. some other fillings depending on what kind of quesadilla you order? Mm-hmm. That personally, I always love to get a uh, chicken fajita quesadilla. Um, but yeah, that was pretty accurate. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty I can accurate. Give you for you. <laughs> well, we'll see if that holds up. Um, I was going to ask. I mean, another just basic. Um, Mexican food item, or at least Tex-Mex food item. Like, remember, there is a difference. We are Texans. We know our Mexican food to be of the Texas variety. Um, I was going to ask you, what can you describe a chalupa? Um, well, you know, Taco Bell really ruins everything, doesn't it? It, it they've, they've kind of, you yeah. know, what? When I think of a chalupa, I, I, I think about a sort of a Something similar to a taco with sort of a a puffy fried shell that is uh, filled with uh, taco type fillings, lettuce, cheese, meat, tomatoes, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how accurate that is to what Tex-Mex restaurants call a chalupa, but 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess in my brain, I was imagining it to be, you know, the hard, the flat hard shell topped with, you know, refried beans and then, uh, you know, your choice of like meat. I always think of that as a tostada. Cheese. Tostada? Yeah. Okay. But and then see, it just goes to show how divergent, you know, our understanding of these things can be. I could be, and I could be wrong. I could easily be wrong. Maybe I misremembering a chalupa. What about carne asada? Carne asada is is just kind of like um, beef cut, like relatively thin, like maybe like a flank steak. Uh, it's grilled. It's usually served with onions, mm-hmm. beans, rice, tortillas. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think you. I think you nailed that one. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would say about it, but yeah, I mean, I would I would say that it it's kind of has a stew quality to it, but it's a really great if you're the kind of a uh, person who likes to put your own tacos together. Usually, when you order it at a restaurant, you're going to be getting some tortillas on the side, and you can just take everything on the plate and make your own little taco. You said, okay. are you talking about carne asada this? or carne guisada? Carne guisada. Carne guisada. Yeah, that's the that's more of the stew consistency where it's like liquid chunks of beef, okay, liquid or sometimes they do. Don't they do carne guisada with uh, with pork sometimes too? Oh yeah, I see. I I misspoke or my my lack of pronunciation. Yeah, the asada is much closer to actually being a steak. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was describing as carne asada, but carne guisada is more of what you're describing, which was sort of the the beef and the gravy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, my least favorite, um, let's just do one more. Um, I forgot what it is. I know what it is. I just know that it's, I'm only saying part of it. You know what it is? You just are saying part of it? I guess. I guess uh, I'll say this. What? How would you describe mole? Mole is like a fragrant chocolate sauce that's made with spices, typically served over uh enchiladas or or can be served over just chicken but it's a it's an aromatic sauce Mm -hmm. that is um varies in its sweetness some people make a really sort of bitter mole some people make a very sweet mole Mm -hmm. my favorite mole i've ever had is the one that they serve at i think it's called las palomas in austin and they do Mm -hmm. cheese enchiladas with a really sweet cinnamony uh, mole sauce which is fantastic but i think a lot of people would be like it's not not exactly what i consider mole because i think a lot of people consider mole the more sort of like bitter sweet you know dark chocolate mm-hmm. kind of flavor yeah i i asked about you know i asked about it because it's always stuck out like a sore thumb to me because i think when i was a child i ordered a mole dish i was very excited <laughs> about it uh and it came out to the table, and it's one of the few times that I remember not finishing a meal at a restaurant, um, <laughs> because it just—I think—I think the promise of a chocolatey, you know, dish just wasn't lived up to. Maybe I should try the one. Uh, where'd you say that one was? The sweet cinnamony. Mole? Yeah, Las Palomas. No, the the as as, as a child mm-hmm. you may not have liked it, but as an adult, I think that you'll be like, this was the the mole I was looking for. Um, I will. I'll send. You, I'll send yeah. you a link to Las Palomas. Uh, let's see if I can figure out exactly where it is. I hope it's still in existence. That would be disturbing. Okay. Yeah. It's Las Palomas. Yeah. And it is. 
on Bee Cave Road in the Westwood Shopping Center in Austin. Um, hey, you know what? Next time I'm in Austin, we should definitely go because I, I miss that place. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Always use it as a good excuse. Yeah, come and visit me as a good excuse to go and get some delicious food. Um, that's what I visit you for most of the time, too. You always know the best places in Houston. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having Houston cuisine more regularly. Well, I think that that covers most of our bases. I mean, of course, there's there's a lot of different dishes in Tex-Mex food, but that was a nice little overview of some of them. And I think you passed with flying colors. You might have even, even, you even answered my near accidental trick question of the asada versus gasada variety so danny i'm going to give you a perfect score of 100 out of 100 oh thank you very much appreciate that if i know anything it's atlantis right. and uh, mexican food and yeah Tex-Mex. it seems like it well okay folks well with that i think we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up you know got to keep it under an hour and like uh, well at least under two hours for will's sake otherwise that taskmaster is going to be coming at us yeah so uh <laughs> um danny uh any last minute thoughts before we get out of here uh nothing worth sharing publicly okay well i can't wait to get on the phone with you in private me too um well this has been danny and i have been joel reminding you that you must start somewhere so why not here thanks for listening Theme music by James Holden, produced and edited by William Weinman.